Welcome to Failing Forward. Today we're talking to Anne Sprinkle and Dipendra Sharma from CARE's Tipping Point Project on the experience of running an RCT. What are the pluses and minuses, and how do we make sure that we're building our research to fit community needs and not trying to force community needs into the shape of what research wants to see? Thank you so much for joining me today. Can you introduce yourselves? This is Dipendra Sarma. I am team leader for Care Nepal's LEAD program. Tipping Point is one of the projects I'm working with. I have been engaged with Tipping Point for the last two years. At the end of the first phase, I was here, and then after in the second phase from the design workshop. Hi, everyone. My name is Anne Sprinkle. I am the project director for Tipping Point. I've been with CARE on and off for um, about four and a half years on different teams within CARE USA's PPL unit. Why should we talk about failure? All engagement of any organization should not be success in every aspect. We may face some type of failures which should be documented and that can be learning for the next planning. And we also need this to mitigate the risks. There are many things that we have to discuss also on the failing part of any interventions. I agree, Dipendra. There's always something to discuss. I think we all know doing this work that it can be really challenging and we're constantly adapting and making changes. Our attempts to discuss that and reflect on that and document those adaptations or challenges and how we maneuvered around them can be really important, not just for the specific team doing it, but for organizations or our own organization attempting the same type of work. And what's the context of what you're talking about today? The tipping point in our second phase, we're undertaking a three-arm cluster randomized control trial, or RCT, to study the effectiveness of the different components of the intervention that we're using in the second phase. So the first phase, the monitoring, evaluation, and learning system was built on feminist and developmental design principles, where we really focused on raising up and centering the voice and experience of girls in their communities. As we tested and piloted, and adapted interventions to address the root causes of child early enforced marriage in both Nepal and Bangladesh. So it was more iterative, pilot tested. There were many community-led activities that we wanted to see the efficacy of to address things like social norms that drive the practice of child marriage in these contexts. We've learned greatly from that phase and from other projects and evidence around us. And so phase two's package for implementation, still on child early enforced marriage and still addressing the underlying causes of it, it's much more structured. And so the RCT, as we call it, um, is designed to test the effectiveness of that package, but also to impact the discourse on child early enforced marriage programming and research. We would like to bring a quote unquote rigorous method to that conversation, particularly around how effective social norms, integration, and approaches are for ending child marriage. Okay, so what went wrong? This has obviously been a really big new undertaking for all of our teams. So we have the Bangladesh team, we have the Nepal team in lead, and we have the global team. And for each of these teams, it's been a new experience and undertaking. I'd love to hear Dependra's thoughts about the challenges in Nepal first. The challenges we faced because of this random control trial, we actually contract out those things and they were primarily responsible to identify the household and they prepared the list of household in a particular cluster and uh, the clusters the household are very much scattered they identified and it was very hard for us to gather the girls and boys from the different scattered location in one venue the distance is hindering and we have seen some absenteeism and some dropout because of the distance 
Another challenge is household identification has been done by IDA Emory. They identified the house and they, they collected the name of the girls and boys. And then after our social mobilizer went to form the group. That means one step of the attachment between household and the social mobilizer, that part has been missed. And rapport building between household and the social mobilizer, they have to rework again. It is also time consuming. The another third challenge is actually the Care Nepal working with the poor, vulnerable and marginalized community. But because of the this uh, random control tire, we have to compromise the of that strategy. And uh, we little bit focused on the semi-urban area where the people are uh, in the better of living positions. The research institution, they applied their own policy, just like they provided some type of allowances to the household. That is actually become a challenge for us. The community has expected that some such type of incentive or cash benefit can be available from the project. We have to escape from the care Nepal's other intervention area. Therefore, we have to adjust our some of the program theory leads strategy just like education is one of the important part of Care Nepal's theory of change, but we have to invest more on education in the particular locations. And from your perspective, what are some of the challenges and difficulties you're facing? I totally agree with Dipendra. In Bangladesh, has faced uh, many of the same types of challenges. So for instance, like Dipendra was talking about, randomized selection of participants that's completely outside of our control now. They're much more scattered. Same difficulty that Nepal is facing with just um, having a centralized location of adolescent girls and adolescent boys to come. It can be much more difficult. As well as, as Dipendra was saying, the lead program has its theory of change and so we needed for the RCT to work in only new communities where other care projects had not been extensively involved for um, many previous years. For instance, we had to move to completely different communities. At a global level as well, and something that we talked to Dipendra and the Bangladesh team about quite a bit is the fact that this package is meant for diffusion. It's meant for social norms change beyond the individual level, beyond the household level. We're looking for community level and higher change. That involves engaging stakeholders such as community and religious leaders, as well as government officials that work at a higher level than just the household and community to support that institutional change. And so that presents an issue with possible contamination with control areas. For instance, if we're engaging a nurse from a health post that serves 15 different communities, but only five to seven of them are intervention communities, there's a high likelihood that the other communities that she's going to end up serving are covering the control communities. And so we have to weigh the huge benefit of engaging a health post worker in these types of dialogues with the potential to contaminate control communities because she's obviously going to be serving them. That's been really difficult to make those choices and to keep true to our design and our theory of change and our results framework while also testing the bounds of the RCT as we talk to our research partners. I would just like to underscore Dependra's point about coordination. As you heard, Dependra explained, there are multiple levels of coordination and communication that are required to both get the RCT done, data collection that's happening in sequence with our group formation and launching of projects, activities. They need to go almost in lockstep and there needs to be a high amount of coordination and communication that can be sensitive, but also as Dependra was saying, it can be incredibly time consuming. So when you're at the point of, you know, launching a project, getting ready to start your activities, you're 
really focused on some new things, some new types of communication coordination, especially with people and research partners that you may never have worked with. It can be a very different way of working for projects. So if I can summarize what I hear you saying, there's a couple of key things that are really coming up for both of you. One is around the logistic, coordinating with partners, getting on the same page, but also that if we randomly select people, it's not necessarily done with an eye to how do we most effectively deliver the program or how do we do things in an efficient way that, that works really well for the community. And I also hear you talking about contamination of a control group, which from a research perspective is contamination and from Sarah's perspective is diffusion and scale, which is something we're really excited about. So trying to balance that tension between seeing communities adopt an idea that's exciting and works for them versus putting your research findings at risk. Actually, the management, HR management was also a challenge for us because we selected the staff at the beginning and then after we selected, randomly selected the sites and the staffs are not from the same location and then they have to put many effort to engage with that community to understand the context of the community. What are you guys doing about that? How are you moving past some of those challenges? In Bangladesh, we've employed a couple of different solutions. So for instance, we use fun centers. So that's just the weekly meeting location for adolescent girls and boys and mothers and fathers for their sessions many times use those same locations. We've tried moving around those locations so they're more centralized. We've also had to employ a couple of different strategies just to work with our school counterparts. Care staffs are engaging more with the field level staffs so that we can have clear communication re regarding the resource and the everything. We have been going to the field and engaging with the staff, clarifying them what is the reason behind it. Another thing is we are trying to find out the positive deviance group. There are some support groups like local government and teachers. There are some other people who are very positive to the project and we are trying to mobilize them or engage them. The communities that Dependra mentioned, again, randomly selected and again, randomly selected participants within in those communities. But when we went to um, receive consent and have group formation and recruitment for those groups from those randomly selected lists of participants, we had really low consent rates. I think there were only four or six boys in one of those communities. We had a really, our partners had a really hard time for a number of different reasons that are specific to those communities. We're coming from the perspective of the research and its methodology for participant selection comes first, not the kind of shape and needs of the community. And so Dependra, like he's saying, is employing a couple of different methods to try to increase participation rates in that community. And then I would say the issue of possible diffusion in the control areas right now is just simply communication and documentation. As soon as we saw this issue, we understood this issue better as we're rolling out activities. We communicated with our research partners. We asked them to explain any implications that that might have for us, their suggestions for mitigating those risks. It's basically documentation right now. We need to document how we're going about that. And so that's why Tipping Point created the implementation fidelity standards. So this is not just to help our implementation maintain some type of fidelity across both countries, but it's also to document how we're going about each step, how we're implementing our core activities and strategies. And so this is for both research purposes as well as replication and scale purposes. And if you could do it differently, you could start over now and change things. What would you change? 
we really benefited from having one of our research partners in that design conversation. Right after that, the next thing that came was the research design. And so our implementation package design came after that. So if I had to do this all over again, I would love to start with programming. I would love to start with good programming, what we require, what we need to do good programming in both of these contexts, and then build the research design off of that instead of retrofitting or going back after we were kind of rolling with implementation, having to go back to those methodological rules and guidance to guide us in our actions. I think the other way around would be helpful, but that would really require us as a team and as an organization to prioritize that type of thinking really early on. Dupendra, what about you? What would you change if you could? If we are doing the RCT again, then the cluster identification and the sample household can be done by the project staff there might be the question of the biasness, but we have to work a little bit more to identify the context and identify the cluster. And after identifying the cluster, and then after we can go for the sample, that is RCT can do. But I agree with Anne that with the, how we design our programs and what research methodology fits for that program, that we have to do a little bit homework at the beginning. And then after, if we do RCT, we have to analyze the context because there is a contamination chances of bigger social cultural behavior of the communities from one community to another is the same. And in that context, there is high chances of the contamination. One of the things I hear you say is a very common fear, especially people at CARE have around the RCTs, which is this idea that we prioritize the research needs and not the community. There are returns to investing in good research, but if we invest in research over what the community needs, but not what we believe in as an organization. How do you think about balancing those two pieces? Having this relationship with your research partners earlier on is always beneficial. That's beneficial in a couple of different ways for design specifically, but I think also having researchers really understand where we're coming from, our approaches, our relationship with these communities, because care is uniquely placed because it has such deep connections for such long periods of time with communities we serve. Having that relationship and having the buildup to data collection be longer or as long as is possible, I think really builds that mutual understanding and relationships. So it can be balanced. It can be a partnership. It can be mutual understanding of what's important in this situation and not just the methodological requirements that need to be met for this to be a quote unquote rigorous study inevitably in an RCT, there's a control community. And I think each project needs to think about how they work with that. Many projects and programs and country offices think about the implications of that. So for instance, a control community simply does not gain from the intervention that you're testing in areas around them. And what does that do to your relationship with that community and those around it? And your partner staff, that has real implications for them. Different projects deal with it differently. Some just simply treat it as a control and are not able to implement there. The Abdiboro project in Ethiopia will actually be implementing a lighter package, I believe, in their control communities after their study is done. And that's something that we're thinking about exploring and tipping point as well. So lots of ways to go about it, but it is a common concern for many project programs and country offices for a really good reason. Another common concern is the issue of the research 
research purity versus adaptive management. So if we get partway into a project and we realize that we need to change what we're doing, that can mess up the research arm. How do you guys deal with that as a challenge or is it a challenge you face at all? Communication and coordination between everyone who's implementing and their research partners is, is always beneficial. With designing the gatekeeper engagement with religious leaders and community leaders and government officials, we put the program needs first and then we communicated that and asked questions of our research partners later. That open line of communication about programming needs and the methodological concern. I would also say that Tipping Point benefits from phase one greatly. We had multiple years to implement in these communities or nearby communities, test many pieces of our intervention, as well as the lead up to phase two's implementation. The girls package, boys, as well as mothers and fathers, we were able to field test those with our partners in nearby communities in Nepal and different communities in Bangladesh. One of the things I hear you saying is this idea that maybe the RCT isn't the first thing you do. Maybe you do a phase one version where you focus on more of the adaptive management, more of the iterative, attempting new ideas and seeing what seems like it's working and where is there promising evidence of change that that's less rigorous. I would also say that Phase one was highly beneficial for multiple reasons, but it was unique in that we used feminist and developmental principles for our monitoring, evaluation, and learning. We really wanted to center the voice and experiences of girls through highly participatory evaluation methodologies. So things like photo voice, sense maker, social norms measurement through qualitative methods like focus group discussions, outcome mapping is our main learning tool throughout. Those were really helpful in just getting deep learning and also contextualized understanding of the drivers of child marriage in those contexts. Those were really helpful. RCT is not always the answer and the field in general has big critiques of it for really good reasons. So the things that I would say is that qualitative research can also be rigorous. It is not always viewed or seen that way as by specific actors in this space. That was why we did pivot to the RCT. So I would say if you're going to do an RCT, it needs to be mixed methods. We're learning so much from both our qualitative and quantitative data, data sets. So putting them together really provides a unique voice and perspective. And secondly, you need to have a really clear objective for an RCT because we, as we all know, it is a large investment. At the end of the day, it is taking up a significant portion of your budget. So you're having to make sacrifices in other places. Be really clear about why you're doing an RCT and what you're going to do with it afterwards. And that will help steer your decision-making process. What you're describing is a pretty dramatic shift between the feminist and developmental-centered evaluation that centers on the voices of girls and an RCT, which might be the least participatory version of m and &E that exists. How do you manage that change in terms of expectations, both from the staff who've been involved across both pieces, but also from the communities that you were working with before? We are receiving some of the questions from the staffs and uh, also from the communities like what will happen after 18 months. An imbalance has been created and so our monitoring system tries to bring that back to balance a little bit more. For instance, the girl-centered movement building component of phase two is only in quote-unquote heavy communities, the social norms heavy communities. All of the monitoring is girl-led. So girls do their own surveys, they do their own pre-post tests, they do their own reflection 
actions, their most significant change stories, um, they completely drive all of that monitoring and learning themselves. And so we're, we're hoping to learn quite a bit from that. That's rolling out in Bangladesh next month and in January in Nepal, as well as kind of our, our staff transformation monitoring system. We've got a couple of different methods to try to understand the pathway of change for our staff. As they go through staff transformation, um, social analysis and action are a big part of what we do in Tipping Point. So we want to monitor and understand that better. And that, that's really based in the voice and reflections of field staff as well as care staff working on and managing the project. We're trying to highlight voices in different ways through that as well as through the qualitative work. And what are your plans for taking what the findings are of the RCT back to the community and having conversations about that? That's a great question that we're, we're starting to ask ourselves now. So we're about a third of the way through implementation right now. So we've got a little bit more than a year left of implementation. And then we'll have a 12-month freeze period. So all communities control and implementation communities, there will be a freeze. There will be no activity by care. And then we'll have the inline. So we've started discussions about how we want to engage with those communities after inline, including trying to live into those feminist evaluation principles where participants are not simply passive respondents in this study. They are creators of knowledge. They actively live that knowledge every day. How do we share with that with them in an equitable but effective fashion? What is one action that you would recommend to other people based on your experience? Our recommendation would be like the process uh, should be like the what program is demanding. It's research should not guide the program. Actually. Great point, Dependra. My specific action point for people would be to plan ahead as much as possible and give yourself enough time for both. Give yourself enough time for program design and give yourself enough time for research design because we all know that program design takes time and we all know that startup takes time, but it takes almost an equal or more or larger effort to design such a study and do it in a way that is in line with CARE's mission and values and your program goals, um, especially when you're working with an external partner. Give yourself enough time and space to do that and do it well. This is kind of an unfair question, but how much time is enough time? What would you recommend? In Nepal, we had a call for proposals in, I believe, October. Research partner was chosen in November. The contract development took all of December and January. Obviously, those are tough months in the U.S. to get a lot done. That was not enough time. Even though we had the research design completely set and we were able to give them tools from the Bangladesh context that they just simply needed to adapt, that was not enough time for contract development and signing. The IRB can take anywhere from three to nine weeks in certain contexts and countries. I would say from putting out an RFP for a research partner to starting implementation in Nepal, it, it took us nine months. There were certainly delays. If you're trying to do it in six months, that would be pretty difficult at the scale at which we're working. So you've talked a lot about making sure that program drives research and not the other way around. How were you able to use lessons from Tipping Point Phase 1 and from the way you had the program design, or at least the large picture of it set in Nepal, to influence research? And how would you do that more in the future? 
there are a couple of things that we took from phase one that were really important. In particular, the prioritized social norms that we saw as underlying child marriage. We made sure that they were core to the research design and the methodologies there throughout both the quantitative survey and the qualitative methodologies. We touch on all of those norms and dig deep into them in all communities for the phase two RCT. Since we were able to test many parts of the package, we kind of understood how they would be rolled out, and we knew some of the changes that we saw occurring in phase one, so we wanted to make sure that we understood more about those changes and the pathways or connections those changes had. Do you have any last thoughts or reflections that you want to share with the audience? The only thing I would underscore is if you're going to take an RCT, you need to have a really good reason for doing that. And I think we do in phase two. We're trying to impact the discourse on child early enforced marriage, prevention and response and research and funding. And this RCT specifically responds to the audiences that we'll be targeting with it and the types of dialogue and discourse that we want to have. And RCT is one extremely important tool for us in that. I would say on the flip side of that, qualitative research can also be rigorous and can also be incredibly fruitful and mixed methods are always a good idea. So planning ahead for those and investing in those at whatever scale are really important. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode.